Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking, just based on the structure, it's no different from the way um, you know the jails are ran. You have wardens, and you know the warden really represents, if you're looking historically, um, a slave master. You have a principal in the school who acts the same way as the warden. Then you have, you know, the police officers or the COs, which to me represents the teachers. Um, you know, they are considered, I guess, the slave catchers. You know, you need a hall pass to go and, and use the washroom. Right? <laughs> you need this to do that. And then there's a, there's a bell for you to be able to go outside and see some daylight. Otherwise, you're, you're in a room all day until they tell you when you can get a break, when you can have lunch, um, which is the industrial system. And that's where the prison system was founded on. And so that's why I look at it from that perspective, because it's the same structure. Nothing has changed, right? The only difference is, you know, you're allowed to wear your own clothes if it's a public system as opposed to the Catholic. You are listening to the Derek Asante Podcast, the show that brings you insightful conversations about everyday topics. We just aim to keep the discussion above the average. Our guests are the ones bringing the social proof to the conversation. Let's get into it. I'm your host, Derek Asante, and today we're going to try a little something different. I have two wonderful guests with me, um, Shelly and Stefania, and we're going to try a little something different where we're just literally going to have a great conversation about a t- subject matter that I think it's important that uh, hasn't been happening too often in our communities. And I'm excited to see what comes of it. And I hope you enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, welcome Shelly and Stefania. Hello, hello. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, ladies, for doing this. Um, the subject matter I wanted to talk about tonight was actually called um, being Black and how it can be traumatizing. But being Black is traumatizing. First of all, when you, when you hear that, I'm curious because I think it is. Being uh, you know, a Black male navigating the world the way we do, or the way I do every day, I think it's it's pretty daunting. It's pretty taxing mentally, emotionally, but I'm curious to hear it from the other side also. So what, what comes to mind when you hear that? Like, are you also experiencing something similar or is it different for you? I think absolutely <laughs> um, <laughs> comes to mind. And uh, I think we experience it in different ways, but definitely experience. Stefania, what comes to you? Um, so the way that I see it, obviously there's no other answer, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. Cause trauma is something that's like a disturbing experience for you. Right. Right. And once it's regarding around, you know, people who are black, there's no other answer. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, because, because you can't get out of your skin, right. You can't change it. You can't trade it in for something that's going to minimize that trauma. Right. So that's the way I kind of look at it too. Mm -hmm. Now, so when I think about that, when, when that first came to me and I was thinking about this conversation, I thought about the way we glorify some things, right? Like the ghetto or the hood, however you want to call it. But why do you think we glorify it? Like just yeah. thinking, you know, where, where you came from, was it anything labeled with those two terms? First of all, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Um, it was, but I feel that my experience with the ghetto, aka hood, was completely different um, because I felt loved, I felt protected. Um, I, I don't look at it the way that society tends to portray it in the media, so it's very different for me. Okay. Um, I think for myself, just because I know that I guess I've been to a few different quote-unquote hoods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like each of them, it has like their own specialty. You know what I mean? Like, you know who you can mess with, you know who you can call on, you know if you need a ride from point A to B, you know who to call, right? right? So, I mean, it's not all bad, but there are definitely some bad parts, just like anything, right? So, So, you know know how the media does a great job um, synonymously aligning the term, you know, ghettos with poverty. I don't know. So I, I grew up in the neighborhoods as well. Um, that's, that came with that label, but like, like you, I think there's a lot of great things about it. And is it more about survival at that point, like growing up in such neighborhoods or do those labels actually keep you there longer than you'd like you find or no? Mm. Yeah. I'm going to say that for some people, it, it, there's an energy, I feel personally, um, around those neighborhoods. And I think it's also just the patrolling of the police, the way that they're, um, the outlook, the way that uh, community services tend to look at them, that kind of keep you in the box longer. And you really have to fight and push to get out. Right. right. Yeah. And if I can just add on to that with... Um, an analogy, I think. It's like that saying about crabs in a barrel, right? right? Like the only reason why they're pushing on top of one another is because of the environment that they're in, right? right. right. It's like you can't heal in an environment that hurt you. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it has to do a lot with mindset. Like if you don't feel like you're going to go anywhere else, you're just going to stay in your head, that's where you're going to be, right? As a man think it, so is he. So yeah, I think that's how I feel about the situation. So the way you think of it is how you are. I guess that's how you, is that what I heard? As yeah. a man thinking, right? Yeah. It's like how people say, you know, I'm going to fake it till I make it. Like when you start faking confidence, <laughs> <laughs> one day that lie is going to be so deeply rooted that even you're going to believe it. And boom, you're confident all of a sudden. <laughs> right, right. right. Let me know if I'm wrong. Maybe nah. try it. Maybe I've tried it. It's great. <laughs> it's It's true though. I mean, like, you, when you think about it, a lot of us grew up, you know, knowing people and and that were considered really cool, even though they lived next door to you and they're just as broke as you. But being from the hood was kind of like a badge of honor, right? Like it's, it's mm-hmm. cool to say that I'm from this neighborhood because nobody's going to mess with me or or they think it's also cool that I'm from there and they know me. Mm-hmm. You know, so. But what's the significance, though? Right. Um, between media calling you um, black and poor and you're from the ghetto, but your peers think of you as either you're the cool kid or you're not, right? And that you should be thinking about why am I still living in this in these conditions and whatnot? Like, how do we, why do we accept it? Why do we take it and say, you know what? It's not a bad thing because the people that I'm, I'm living with are also pretty cool people. Is that that we accept it? would be my question. Um, And I say that because I know like my mom 
um, other people's moms, parents, uh, period, when we were told that, oh, you have to do um, the college, <laughs> for instance, um, college course for grade 11, 10, whatever the case was, versus um, the course that got you to university, they fought back. They didn't say no, that, that's exactly what we're going to do. No, no, they went in, they spoke to the teacher, they pushed back, they said, not my son, not my son, not my daughter. Um, so I think the question is, do we accept it or do we know that there's more and do we fight for it? Okay. Yeah. I think for myself, even like I grew up in Toronto, kind of, and like I was in a certain neighborhood where you know, my parents didn't come home from work right away, right? So there was this neighborhood auntie and we'd always go to her house. She would always have food for us. So I think the portrayal of media that like what they have on, you know, the quote unquote hood and what the reality is, it's more like a community. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? But I guess, you know, just how things are going, you know, history said it best itself, you know, it repeats itself. So I mean, mm -hmm. Like, it's just always going to be, you know, I won't say wrong, but definitely there's going to be a lot of people misled through it, right? Right. But right. I mean, I don't know. To me, I think of it as a community, you know, like, obviously, you know which aunties are going to beef with you. You know which aunties are going to take care of you if you knock on, the, on their door at 1 a.m., right? You know which homie's house you can go and sleep over at um, if something goes left. You right. know what I mean? So just those kind of things. And I don't see the media saying that. So. So, but is it, is it a part of the programming though, for us to come to terms and accepting that, like the fact that our conditions are fine, should we not want more? But yeah, what is but, that, what does what that more look like? But how are these, com these conditions being placed? Like who placed, you know, us in these conditions? I feel like that should be like the question asked here. Ah. You know what I mean? Oh, I like that. I, like I don't that. know. That's just me. I'm going to have to agree. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, and look at it from that perspective. Yeah, because a lot of times, I mean, certain mentalities are pushed on us. We're thought to be, or we're, where people are, speak to us like we're lesser. People tell mm -hmm. us that we're lesser, but are we really lesser? Are we going to? accept that programming or are we going to fight back and know that we are equal right know that we have just as many qualifications know that we probably even have a little bit more because we know how to survive in what's considered bad or poor conditions right but surviving is that living i don't think that's living though i mean survive surviving i mean if you think about it if somebody says to you every day i'm, I'm just surviving you know how you meet somebody or you see someone for the first time in you know in, in in the week and you say oh how how are you doing and they say to you i'm surviving but that to me doesn't sound like you're living because if you go back to the original analogy i think stefania mentioned was the crabs in the barrel it's the same thing they're trying to get out but the other won't let you get out right and so that's survival trying to just get away from your own people to get out ahead but if they're not allowing you to get out, then are you actually living because you're still amongst the crabs? I'm going to say, yeah. And as well, for some, um, some people, I'm sure accept that as the reality, but I think I've seen too many people say, okay, this is what I need to do to survive. And this is what I need to do to excel. This is what I need to do to get my next generation 
out of here and give them opportunities. And I've seen people work three jobs, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. still make it to parent-teacher meetings, still um, make sure that food is prepped so that their kids are eating. Um, you know, so I, I think it depends on, okay, yes, you know what you need to know to survive, but you also push past that so that the next generation has an opportunity to excel. But how, how does one develop that though? Because if all I know is what's in this barrel that I'm stuck in here with everybody else, mm-hmm. where am I going to get this know-how or this insight to say, you know what, there's more out there and I, I want that more. And how do I go about getting that? Exposure, try. Um, for my mom, I know she was exposed to a lot and she re-exposed me to a lot. Um, for our mom, I should say. And uh, for other people that I know that, for instance, uh, their parents were nurses and um, they pushed to make sure that they, they graduated the nursing program, they moved their kids out, they, they gave them opportunities, they sent them to volunteer programs, they sent them to other environments that were outside of that so that they saw that there was more. So that's the parents then you're talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that could work. I think, I think a lot of parents need to um, step up to the plate though, because it's easy for us to say, well, I'm trying my best and and I got to go to this job and that's all I got to do, put food on, on the table. But clearly based on what you just said, it's not enough to just do that. No, I feel like you do need the exposure because if you don't, if you can't see the goal, then can you really get there? If you can't imagine more, then what are you reaching for? And can I interject to say that it's not only on the parent? Just because, like, I know even for some people, like, you know, let's just say their parents aren't even here. You know what I mean? Like, how would they go about doing that? I think making yourself uncomfortable in certain situations that you wouldn't typically be in, finding yourself in circles that you wouldn't typically be in, finding yourself in rooms that you don't even think that you'd be allowed in, but you're there. I think that is also going to make a difference for, you know, that person. You can see that. So, okay. Talk to me about the school system. So I, th- I think <laughs> the school system re- re- represents uh, the prison system. That's just my perspective on it. Anybody feel differently or where do we, where do we stand with that? Uh, I can't say that I've had a different experience. Unfortunately, I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking just based on the structure, it's no different from the way, um, you know, the jails are ran. You have wardens and, you know, the warden really represents, if you're looking historically, um, a slave master. You have a principal in the school who acts the same way as the warden. Then you have, you know, the police officers or the CEOs which to me represents the teachers. Um, you know, they are considered, I guess, the slave catchers. You know, you need a hall pass to go and, and use the washroom. Right? <laughs> you need this to do that. And then there's a, there's a bell for you to be able to go outside and see some daylight. Otherwise, you're, you're in a room all day until they tell you when you can get a break, when you can have lunch, um, which is the industrial system. And that's where the prison system was founded on. And so that's why I look at it from that perspective, because it's the same structure that nothing has changed, right? The only difference is, you know, you're allowed to wear your own clothes if it's a public system as opposed to the Catholic. 
You know what? The when you break it down like that, there's no denying it. Um, <laughs> it's scary <laughs> though, right? Isn't. No, it is. And then when you even think about the conditioning, um, like right. how some teachers promote other students over others, it, it, right. it's very much there. Very much there. Yeah. Right. No denying but, it. But but then the scary part is because we're talking about trauma and, and what that means for us being Black. So think about now the Black students and how they're treated completely different in the same school? Well, if I could share a story about that, um, we were talking about a French teacher and I, I got turned off French very young. Um, this was mm, elementary and mm. we had a French teacher in the class. There was only several black students um, and she would particularly pick on the black students and it actually got so bad that she actually called us out uh, by the N-word. <laughs> Um, wow. one day. So this is, this is happening in the public school system. Um, and the only saving grace for that was somebody that looked like us, that represented us, a black teacher that happened to be walking by, happened to hear her do this and happened to report her. Otherwise it would have continued. And for me, it turned me off French completely. I, I switched the moment I could, I switched to Spanish. That was it. Wow. So, Yeah. Right. We're having a bit of a debate right now with my uh, daughter. She's in French immersion and. Would she still be doing French immersion at the school or no? Um, but she, I mean, she, she has her moments where she, she likes it. And then she has her moments where she's just not enjoying it. And I think yeah. personally, I, I was telling my wife, I think it's uh, a situation where it can be challenging for a child, right? It's not her first language. It's not mine. It's not my wife's either, but. How do we then support her when she has a French homework? You know, yeah. Right. So that's the challenging part because if we're unable to assist her the way that she might envision us being able to assist because we are her parents, that might take us, you know, a shot at her confidence or, or things like that. And I can see that happening with my daughter just because of her character. And so I don't know if it's going to be beneficial or damaging. So um, but ultimately, I think we're just going to put them back in the same school and just let them live. Okay. And just go through the process that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, honestly, I think it's a beautiful or it can be a beautiful language. It's just how you learn it. Yeah. And in, in that case, um, I, I know and I hope she'll have a really good experience because, again, languages are great. It's just how you're introduced to them. And I think you guys are definitely pushing her in the right direction so i'm going to throw this at you guys i'm thinking why do we hurt each other like as, as far as black people because you know we've heard that term by the way based on i'm going to i'm bringing this up because that video you sent me prompted it right yeah, okay. back okay. in that crime why do you think we do that is i don't personally personally i don't think it's a thing oh do you want to add do you want the real answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i want the real answer that's the question um I know a lot of people are going to debate about this, but I think one of the things that's very important to read is the Willie Lynch letter. And when you read that letter and you understand the mental manipulation that happened to us mm -hmm. um, as slaves. It's and, still happening. Yeah, and then it's still happening. And, but that's the thing. It says it's going to last for generations, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think we've been pitted against each other. I think we've been, um, our differences have been highlighted so that we can hate each other on those. I, I, there's so much mental things that have um, been, 
uh, how would I say this story? I don't want to get myself in trouble here. But there's a lot of mental manipulation when it comes to our population. And um, it's unfortunate, but it's still ongoing. And I think a lot of that has to do with a loss of history, um, a lack of knowing what was done to us, and, you know, just just not really digging into who we are and getting comfortable with that, and getting comfortable with loving each other and supporting each other. So. Yeah, I, I remember it was, I, re, I read that, I think it was six years ago or something like that, that same mm-hmm. letter. It's it's scary because we don't realize that trauma is transferable. Yes. Right. And that's something that I learned recently that it was transferable. I didn't know that until recently. So once I learned that, I was like, wow. So that means a mother can easily transfer everything that she's gone through to her child the minute that baby's born or even in the womb. Right. And and that's when it begins. So that makes you wonder why we have these tendencies and, and, and whatnot. But that was very, very powerful. I think that letter, yeah, we do need to read it. But the question then becomes, how do we get out of this cycle? Like we, you and I are talking about it. We know we're aware of it. We're telling other people by doing this and having this conversation. But how do we shake that? What do we need to do? Um, I'd say awareness makes a difference. If I'm aware that, like, let's use another example. If I'm aware that I'm gaining weight or I'm not eating healthy and I need to make a change, right? Then that awareness will prompt me to say, okay, maybe I need to go work out or maybe I need to change my diet here or look into this. So that awareness should prompt some form of education, some form of knowledge or a search for knowledge. And then in that, I can start to see where my mental state um, kind of uh, inhibits me from progressing and change that, like start to implement new things that help me change that. So I think awareness is the first key. Um, it's my opinion. Okay. Stefania, what do you think? Um, I definitely second that. I think just making an effort to um, be able to rewire your thoughts, right? For example, I hate guava, but if I really wanted to love guava every single day, I would tell myself, you know what? Guava is not an evil fruit. It doesn't taste bitter. It is very sweet. It's good for me. And I would down it. So I think likewise, that's what, um, you know, other people, if they want to, should do, right? Like when you speak to somebody, you speak to them, out of love, right? Because you care about them. You care about their well-being and where they're going, right? Not because of whatever other reason it may be, if I explain that, okay. Well, why do we, these are just some of my random thoughts, but why, why do we feel like it's okay to, I guess, project negativity or violence onto another person who looks like you, but not you're, you know, another individual who looks like, quote unquote, the oppressor? Well, it's easy. Simple answer. <laughs> okay, walk me through that. Um, like, for example, right? Who are you most likely to tell your secrets to? I guess not secrets, but let's just say, you know, like you got a girlfriend. Okay, 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 hold on, you're married. Um, let's just say something really good happened to you. Mm-hmm. Who are you most likely to tell? You're somebody who looks like you, aka your family members, your friends, the people who you know are going to celebrate with you. 
or somebody who, you know, quote unquote, looks like the oppressor, somebody who you may not really know, but you'd kind of say it anyway, just to kind of test the waters. Like, you see what I mean? Okay. But, but what if my best friend is white? Yeah, then your best friend's white. <laughs> that's who I'm going to tell. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, like that's like to me, that's great. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like, I think there's just a certain level of comfortability in like telling somebody who looks like your kin. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, just to me anyway. That's how I personally feel about it. Like, I would tell my sister, like, anything that went on, just because not only because she looks like me, but like, just because she's somebody who I'm comfortable with, you know, there's a relationship there, there's a connection that goes, you know, deeper than skin tone, you know, deeper than thoughts, you know what I mean? There's an actual, um, you know, emotion that goes attached with when I say her name, you know what I mean? So that's somebody who I would gravitate towards. But obviously, if my best friend was white, like, then that's what it is. That's who I'm comfortable with. Right. But seeing as though that's not the case, because I live in reality. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I'm asking, okay, so so what if, okay, I do have a lot of really dope friends that are, you know, Caucasian, but to your point, I could go to them. Mm hmm. And what if, okay, what about the person that's listening to this conversation who was adopted? This is all they know. So they get it, they got adopted into a mixed family where, you know, um, another sibling of theirs is going to be South Asian. They're black. Um, and then, you know, they have Caucasian siblings as well. So this is all they know. This is what they grew up with 30 years down the line now. That's their, that's their, that's their kin. Mm-hmm. So what changes there? Like, how do we, how does that person now still inflict pain on someone who looks like them, but doesn't have the connection with that person? So I'm going to challenge you a little bit, if you don't mind. No, no, go for it. Before that person turns 30, that adopted person, right? Mm -hmm. First few years in school, let's just say first 10 years in school, they are most definitely going to know that there's a difference between them and their other sibling. Right. Most definitely. Like, be it, because, you know, it's like when somebody, like when you can feel somebody looking at you, mm-hmm. it's like that feeling, you know what I mean? Right. So either they're going to feel that difference, they're going to know that difference, or somebody's going to tell them. So I feel like 30 years down the line is a little bit too late for them to have that kind of sheltered life. Right. But I think... You know, if that's all they know, then that's all they know. But eventually, the more and more they go out into the world, like they get a job, they get a girlfriend, you know, they start to make friends. Like one way or another, your life is going to set straight and you're going to get you're going to get roughed up by life, man. Like, right. Life is going to do you. <laughs> I don't know if you get what I mean. <laughs> I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down, but yo, and it's not pleasurable. <laughs> it's painful. It's beautiful. All the lessons that you're going to learn, nah, trust me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You're going to wish you learned them at a younger age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think when it comes to like hurting your kin, like I want to say that people feel something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like seconds before you take that other person's life, like you definitely feel something. Like looking in their eyes, hearing their last words, like you definitely feel something. 
I, you know what I mean? It, it's, I, I kind of took the perspective of it being a cowardice approach where you fear the other so much that you wouldn't even process a thought of going to harm them. And the only time you might harm them is if your back was against the wall and you had to defend yourself. But yet you'll turn around and go and intentionally go and hurt this person. And that goes back to the, the, the you know, the programming that we were talking about earlier with the traumatizing, right? Traumatization of your, your being black, you're traumatized because you've been told what your value is in this world. Yeah. And if you... Like subconsciously, you believe it so much that it's okay for you to go and harm someone who uh, is of that, you know, lesser value as well. And and this is a problem because, okay, I go and hurt somebody, the crime doesn't get resolved. But if I go and harm somebody of another group, oh, they're gonna they're gonna catch me before I even you know get a next meal. And this is something that kind of runs through my head here and there. It's like, well this is a perpetuating part. Like this is one aspect of it where we are still being programmed. So you go back to that letter that, you know, Shelly just brought up it's the same thing, right? Teach them to fear you, the oppressor, but not themselves because I'm telling them that they aren't worth anything. That's why you live the way you live. That's why you're in this neighborhood. That's why you're, you know, you're not as smart when we tell you that in schools, that's why we, you know, make sure the foods in your neighborhoods are always from a convenience store or, the, you know, the lesser quality and it's not whole food and this and that. And so you put these people in these conditions, which is the barrel, right? Because they are the crabs and you still, you expect them not to harm each other. That just doesn't make sense. And so when we talk about they have to be exposed, sometimes it's very hard to be exposed. Like I remember the only reason why I even left so I grew up in, in Lawrence Heights. So my first exposure was to Scarborough Town Center. And the only reason I ended up there was because somebody had a car. If that person didn't have a car, I would have no idea it, it existed. Hmm, okay. Okay. So resources needs to be available, I'm thinking, right? So if it's not available to me, how can I see it? And then the first time I went to downtown Toronto was because an art teacher that I had decided to take us down there as a field trip. Otherwise, I'm comfortable within my corridors and not even be interested because the stories I've heard about downtown or the weirdos were downtown, right? And so yeah. all these things. And so that's the, the problem because we're telling ourselves the same negative stories that were told to our parents. And if that's transferable, we know those stories innately without even hearing them sometimes. You know, so that those are the things that kind of run through my head, but I, don't, I didn't mean to ramble on a bit, but no, share your no, thoughts. No. Can I add something to that? Yeah. Um, I think you're, and again, that goes back to your exposure, but I think if you're Caribbean descent, African descent, you also see things differently because in certain countries, you're going to see more Black entrepreneurs, Black, um, you know, successful Black individuals. You're going to see um just differences and it's gonna open up your exposure to the to the fact that you know okay uh, we can do this this is we're literally seeing um somebody of another ethnicity is more like the five percent right yeah. so i think that also makes a huge difference 
Um, and I feel like parents, again, going back to parents that are exposed to that kind of tend to push um, their children a little differently mm-hmm. um, than parents that aren't exposed to that. And right. I think that also kind of opens up how we treat our other. But that said, there are still a lot of classism, a lot of um, uh, slight racial segregation in those, in those things. And we still need to be aware of that. And we still need to fight those. And I think I just want to bring up when they see us definitely did that for me um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it showed us that that show showed us in a very human light. It changed the story, changed the perspective. Right. And I think we need more media that shows that more media that shows or shows us in a human light that shows us um, as parents, children, innocent, <laughs> not, you know, gangsters or whatever the case is. So I think those, those are the things that we need to step up and do and um, expose our communities to. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw something at you, Charlie, because you sent me that link. Okay. Now, for those listening, they, they don't have an idea what it is. It's a video. It's a short film that was sent um, to me and it was talking about stopping the violence uh, black on black crime. And so in the video, there was a clip of young black male who was in dire need of some sort of, you know, income or something. They needed something. And so they felt the need to take it from whoever was around them in, in their surroundings. And they used violence to get that. Right. But they made a mistake. They ended up killing someone who was innocent. And I guess full circle, it came back to them. Right. Call it karma. And that's pretty much the premise of it. And I have to share that because I think it helps with, with context, with what I'm about to ask. So me seeing that, what was the benefit of me seeing that, knowing that I already have my own traumas with such imagery? Did it help me or did it actually just put me back in the space of recognizing that this still happens? Because, I, go ahead. No, no, I, I think... There's a couple of things I took from that. I took the stats from it, um, seeing how many acts of violence were black on black violence, mm-hmm. which was 75% if I remember correctly. And that was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think I took the fact that sometimes our actions or ramifications of our actions are that innocent people or innocent children, in this case, mm-hmm. get hurt. And that we need to be more conscious of um, how we try and obtain our money and how we, I, w- I would say how we um, are an example in our communities mm-hmm. because if in, in, in another life, if you had gone and said, hey, you know, I'm on hard times to the community. Okay, so for instance, I'm a part of a chat <laughs> and um, anytime somebody's in need, they send out the message in the chat everybody raises funds or they find food for the person or whatever they need and they actually donate it to them. No, no strings attached, no nothing. This is just community helping community. And I feel like we need to do that more. So that's what I kind of took from, from that messaging. Mm. Now, Stefania, did you get to see that video? Uh, yeah, I did. What did you get from it? <laughs> Um, I was just talking to Shelly about this after she showed me the video. Um, 
I think it was a good video that had a lot of potential. I just hate that it had, the setting had to be Jane and Finch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's my block, man. Okay, so, okay, so let me ask you this. Since you brought up Jane and Finch, okay? Why was that a trigger for you? Because clearly it was for you to say, well, why did we have to say that, that intersection, that neighborhood? Yeah, because that's my block, Jane and Finch. So... <laughs> I went to three different public schools in the, um, I guess, the North York area. That's my, you know, diplomatic way of putting it. Um, so, like, obviously, you know, there were some things that happened, right? Like, my school didn't go into lockdown for no reason. You know what right. I mean? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it triggered a few things because I was like, yeah, like, you know, even though it's showing the bad sides, you know what I mean? It has a bad rep. Like, there are a few good things, but at the end of the day, do the pros outweigh the cons? You know what I mean? Do my good times outweigh the lives that were lost? Like, it doesn't, but... And, and, yeah. that's, and that's my point, is that it could have been told from a different lens. Because again, it triggered you because why? Okay. First of all, let me ask you this. Why did it trigger you? What, what came to mind when you heard the video say Jane and Finch? Like what, what came to mind? Well, I mean, I'm sure we all know what the reputation. Okay, but, <laughs> but it perpetuated it for you. Um, like it just, it's like, hmm, how can I say, huh? Sorry, I was trying to find a good analogy for it, but nothing's coming to mind. But because I guess in short, like, I guess I was really triggered by it because, you know, I grew up there. Right. <laughs> so it was just, I guess, disheartening to see like, wow, you know, are things worse? Because obviously I don't stay there anymore. But right. I guess if it was that good, why did I leave? Right. <laughs> not necessarily. Not necessarily. Change. We evolve. Right. We want different things. And yeah. so. That could be it too. But the yeah. triggers is what I'm really focusing on here because it, it triggered me to say, well, why are we still painting the same narrative? We're no different from, you know, um, uh, CB24 when they paint the neighborhood with, with a certain brush. Because even though that video is trying to show a particular message, they didn't need to label that neighborhood. And every soundbite was mentioning Jane and Finch. Yeah. So... <laughs> So really the triggers is my concern because now you're keeping people in that space. It's just like memory. Mm -hmm. I have great memories of my neighborhood, but the media is telling me there's a lot of bad things happening in my neighborhood. I'm going to remember that because that's the loudest voice. And I felt like they didn't need to say that in that video. That video didn't require them to say Jane and Finch, but I get it because they're focusing on Toronto. Mm -hmm. When they could have just been focusing on just the violence between black people. Yeah, that would have been where you're coming from. What's that? I do. I see where you're coming from, but is it a good in the sense that we're talking about it? It's raising a conversation. It's getting us to to really think about the violence in those communities. But we know it because we live there. You're trying to get the rest of the people outside of that neighborhood to understand that it's not we can make it better. Like we're actually better people. But that video or that message, when I'm not from there, you're telling me basically not to come there because people have guns and they can just run upon me and shoot me. That's what I'm going to take from it. Forget the stats. I won't remember that. I'll be traumatized to go there. 
Can I? That was my concern because now we just said we want some resources, we want some support, we want to get out of that you know crabs in a barrel scenario. But when we create these videos of ourselves as if we can't tell better stories, you could have told me the story of the the father in the car with his daughter. Tell me that story. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. Tell me that story and then show me the stats on the screen without a gun being shown. You can tell me that same story. Right, uh, and then show me the sound bites. But at least you told me a beautiful story that I can walk away with. But instead, you just embedded the trauma back into me. We didn't negative, negative images travel, right? right. Negative news travel. So right. I guess it's a way to kind of spread the message. But I also understand what you're saying. 100%. Yes, and so my concern was just more like, well, which is more damaging, the stats? Is it going to actually change the way I my, I perceive that neighborhood or the people in that neighborhood or the imagery that I that you presented me? Right. And is it shock value? Did it actually have the impact to make me, another person of color, feel safer, better about my neighborhood? Not necessarily, because I, if I live there, I know it. But you're trying to get other people outside of that neighborhood to be able to feel comfortable enough to come in and support and put in resources because we clearly don't have it. There's a reason why we're telling that story is to get more attention to minimize the violence, right? But it just, it hurt me watching it because I was like, "Ah." again, two males getting killed. The kid gets killed and I was just like, oh, we went through this in the 90s already with every film that was made. (laughs) (laughs) Blockbusters that we can't forget ever. Yeah. We can't. You think about blockbusters from back then, you're thinking Menace Society, Boys in the Hood, Mm -hmm. Higher Learning, name it. Like they were all, you know, sending the same juice. Name it. But is it because it hasn't stopped? Like, what do you know? Is the messaging the same because it hasn't stopped? Right. And what do we do about that? You know, so I think, I don't know, but I didn't mean to drag it on that long, but when do we get to relax though, as people of color? That's, that's another question I'm thinking about because if we're in the skin and being black is traumatizing, when do we get a break? Um, Have you ever listened to Bob Marley war? Yes. Okay. Um, I feel like he sums it up perfectly. (laughs) And uh, I'm actually just going to read. I'm just going to read a part of the song, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Um, To answer your question, I'm going to. So that until that day, the dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality will remain in but a fleeting illusion to be pursued, but never attained. Now everywhere is war, war. And he goes on to say quite a few things, but pretty much um, to me, what I take away from that song is until basic human rights are met and guaranteed without regard to race, we will not have peace. Mm. Yeah, That's, that's the harsh reality. It's hard. Yeah. Hard. Um, I think, 
everyone who hasn't read it, that song, <laughs> to me, yeah. every time I feel an injustice, I actually play it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I want to pick your brain because I know you're into real estate just like I am. <laughs> yes. Gentrification. <laughs> I feel like this is a setup. <laughs> no, it's not a setup. I'm curious. I'm curious to actually hear your thoughts. The reason why, because I drove by, you know, Lawrence Heights uh, the other day and, and I'm seeing it, right? It's happening before my eyes. And so that's where that came from. But we know it happens. But the real question I'm asking now for you both is I want to hear your thoughts on why is it that as human beings, forget color for now, why do we spend more money to stay in small spaces, right? Meaning condos and and the concrete jungle in the city, as opposed to buying land outside and getting more space for less money. It's like we're fighting to pay more just to be in small, confined spaces, to be around people that we don't even know or care about or care to know, which is AKA your neighbors in the city that you don't know. Convenience, the illusion of convenience, the illusion of, uh, well, not illusion. There's actually definitely property value. Um, And it's unfortunate that we don't know our neighbors because that makes a difference in our communities, which is one of the key things against the so-called ghettos versus these gentrified properties. Um, but I'm definitely going to say the illusion of convenience. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's just makes no sense. It's like you're paying more for less. <laughs> Absolutely. Matchboxes. <laughs> right. right. And we're okay with that. We shouldn't be, but here we are, we're doing it. People are saying, Oh, I got to get into the market and spend 2 million on a house when I can get, you know, 10 acres for the same 2 million with a house on it. I have a question um, mm-hmm. about that. So, for instance, Lawrence Heights, which broke my heart, um, just to see what's becoming. Mm-hmm. But um, for properties like that, do you think there's an appeal to the people buying them because they know that it was once a project and now it's this supposedly great development that's convenient and close to the subways and malls and other things? Um. Yeah, but I think those same people buying them are also being duped because they're, again, they're paying like way more for that same illusion. Like those yeah. are the people I'm talking about because yeah, you could, you're going to, you know, you're going to displace people that used to live there and you labeled them for decades that they were poor and they're this or less than, but as long as they put a shiny new building on there, you're coming into that same neighborhood as long as they're not there. So that in itself is a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you're spending so much money just to be next to a mall, <laughs> be next to a subway station yeah. when you own three cars <laughs> makes no sense. No, it really doesn't. But that's why I'm like, there's an illusion that goes up around it. Oh, this great new property. Right. It's so close to this. It's convenient. But you're literally living in what, 900 square feet, maybe 800. If you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I never understood that. Never understood that. Um, yeah. Go ahead. 
No, I just want to say the thing that bugs me about these uh, gentrified projects is that they never make them affordable to the people that live there. So. It, it was it was never about them. Yeah. Plans. But those are those are people that lived there for like twenty years, thirty years that you just right. uprooted, right? So. so so okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate with that because I've never been a fan of that where you come to the country or you could have been born here, right? Either or, it doesn't matter. But housing, public housing is literally supposed to be a temporary situation. For who? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they don't make it temporary. They don't help you to make it temporary. No, they don't. Um, they don't. No. <laughs> but, but if you pay attention to it, there are more um, immigrants that come in, utilize it, and they move out. True. True. Right? They move out. But for some reason, the other system that got us, and I say us as, as in, you know, um, uh, more of our Caribbean, African descent folks that are living in these neighborhoods that, you know, got those labels and obviously challenge me if I'm off or and share your opinion, but we get comfortable. And the other part of it is we fell victim to the welfare system where we learned that, hey, if I have multiple kids, I get money. And why do I want to work if I'm getting money for each child that I have? And we fall, you know, into that. I've, I've known and I've grew up with families and three generations lived in the same house. And they weren't people of color. They were also Caucasian, but both sides, I've seen it. And so the question becomes, well, why is it they choose to stay there? And they accepted the welfare system and, and, you know, subsidized subsidy system and stayed there for generations. And somebody will come in for a year, an Asian family will come in for a year or South Asian camp family will come in for a year or two. And they work their backside off to get out of that situation because it's oppressive. Because they're in your business. They know when you scratch your foot, um, if you cut somebody's grass and you got an extra $40 because you cut the grass, <laughs> they want to know everything. Right. Who's coming and going in, in, in and out of your place and all of that stuff. Who wants to live in those conditions? But you have generations of people doing that. Why are we doing that? I think Steph said it earlier. You got to get uncomfortable <laughs> because um, being comfortable with less, in a sense, um, being comfortable with a lack of freedom is only going to limit your potential in the end and the potential of your, you know, your kids. Um, and I think part of the accepting that is that what is the languaging coming from the social worker? What's the languaging coming from um, the building, like, you know, building manager? What's what's happening? What, what's being told to these people who decide to continue yeah. um, living there? Stefania, I got a question for you. Awesome. All right. Music. What kind of music you listen to? <laughs> I don't know. It depends what I'm in the mood for. Sometimes classical music, you know, sometimes rap. You know, sometimes I like the slow stuff for when I'm cleaning. It depends. Okay. Which one do you frequently listen to? Mm, you know what? 
I listen to a lot of rap nowadays just because, you know, it's summertime, you know, you want to go outside, you need a song to, you know, hype you up, so you can, you know, do your makeup well, put your outfit on, you know, there's nobody there to tell you you look good, so you got to do it. There you go. There you go. Okay. Okay. I like that. I like that. Shelly, what kind of music you listen to these days? Um, well, this morning it was definitely rap. Okay. And um, I I can't handle, I, I love my reggae. So <laughs> definitely some reggae. <laughs> what kind of reggae though? Isn't there, there's a uh, dance hall, then there's like. You know, I love my conscience, but I also yeah. love my dance hall. I, I can't even lie. <laughs> I can't. So I, I like both. It depends on the mood, right? So. Yeah. Now, okay. I decided, the reason why I bring up music is recently I decided to not listen to um, music for no more than an hour. A wow. Day. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying something different. The reason why I'm trying it is because I realized that the more music that I enjoy, that I listen to, the messaging doesn't help. It puts me, it puts me, so what it does is I realize I'm, I'm stuck in a time capsule. I don't listen to music beyond like 2006. Okay. And so I'm always in a time capsule because my favorite music lives in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. Mm, okay. So I feel like every time I listen to a song that triggers a memory, I go back to that time period and I'm there for a little too long than I would like which means I'm distracted, which means I'm not present in what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if you guys go through similar things because music does put you in a mood, like mm-hmm. you said, right? And it mm-hmm. takes you into that space. And I'm supposed to be working on maybe an, ex- an Excel sheet, but I'm not. Now I'm, I'm vibing to the song. And before you know it, two hours have gone. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I didn't do anything. And so I'm consciously trying to make sure I don't listen to music from no more than an hour I don't watch YouTube from no more than an hour a day. And then uh, the rest of the time it has to be either an audiobook or I'm reading something um, or I'm watching something that's going to feed me in a different way. I don't know if you guys experience anything similar with music. No, I can get that. Have you noticed the difference? I'm curious. Say it again. Have you noticed the difference since you've been doing that? I'm curious Huge. because I, I, I get what you're saying. Huge. Um, yeah. Okay. Clarity. Clarity. Right. Like it's, it's, I'm able to actually have clear thoughts um, and focus on what it is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. I'm more focused when I don't do that. I love music. And that was my problem. I would, I would drive to work, listening to music. I would on my way home, I'd be listening to music, but as soon as the music stopped, the, the energy and the vibe that it created was still lingering. Okay. And so that means I'm still in that space. Okay. Right. And that was a problem for me. And, and I, it was harder for me to get out of it because I still wanted to listen to my favorite music. Cause you know how it goes. You start with one artist that you really liked, and then it links you to another artist that you really like. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you're going down a playlist that. Mm-hmm. Out of. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I have been there. <laughs> You know, so I, I recognize that happening. So that's why I said, okay, let me try something different. And so that's what I started to do. Um, but hip hop is definitely one that didn't help with the trauma. It is just everything was violent. Everything is negative and, and, you know, trying to come out of an oppressive situation and 
and it was just too much. It was just too much, right? So that was the conscious decision. But I don't know what your thoughts are on on trying something like that. Um, I think that's great. I think it's something that I would definitely try. Um, further to what you said, I know for me, during rush hour traffic, if I wanted to get in uh, angry mode, then it's hip hop. <laughs> if I wanted to have some road rage, it's definitely hip hop. But if I wanted to be calm and collected as other people around me were having road rage, it's very white. So <laughs> um, I definitely get how music can put you in a mood. Yeah. And as you know, I do like um, certain more underground artists and sometimes mm. they can be very political. Yeah. Um, and you have to just be very careful of how you're interpreting what they're saying and how you're taking it in. So I, I can definitely see what you're saying, how it can affect your mood, how it can affect how you look at things socially, politically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I find I was the road rage was kicking in when I'm listening to hip hop. Try some Barry White, <laughs> right? Right. So I said, no. Let me let me go back to some Napoleon Hill just to get me through this because, <laughs> boy, <laughs> we yeah. So it's it can get it can get tough. It can get tough. Um. So what do you feed your mind to help you manage this traumatizing? You know, what, like how do you how do you navigate every day? Um, for me, sometimes you're in work environments that are very, uh, I could say this nicely, racist. (laughs) Um, And sometimes even just when you enter a room, you notice that people treat you differently or they, they uh, move about you very differently. So for me, I actually do a daily recentering. And I also uh, definitely try and read a lot. Yeah. try and know my history. I, for me personally, I've been very curious about my history, um, knowing what my grandfather's experience was, my great-grandfather, um, knowing what my family's experience was, even their trauma, because believe it or not, one-up aunts, uncles, <laughs> everyone, they have their own experiences, right? They had to fight a different battle. Right. So just understanding that and understanding, rooting myself in who I am mm. and being comfortable with that and knowing that no matter what I do or where I go, I deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. And reminding myself of that. Wow. That's huge. What do you do, Stefania? Um, <clears throat> I mean, so recently I haven't been too good at doing it. Um, but I don't know. I am a venter. Like, I have really close friends who I talk to almost about everything going to my workday and they'll counsel me on it. Like I'll say, okay, you know, ABCD situation was happening and this is how I reacted. Do you think I was tripping? And then they'll say no because of, you know, equally DEFG. Right. right? So on top of that, you know, listening to some audiobooks as well, that'll help me grow. You know, um, one of them that I guess one of my, I guess, self-help books that I like is, um, I think it's Winning Friends and Influencing People or Influencing Friends and Winning People. It's one of those, it's, it's a title like that. I can't remember exactly what it is. But that and Boundaries, yeah, because I, personally speaking, yeah, Boundaries is not really my strong suit, but 
yeah, no matter what workplace I go into, I kind of make friends. But, you know, it's not every friend that you should have, right? Not every friend, not everybody that you consider a friend is a friend to you. Right. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of the time I try to observe the situation, you know, like I'll be friendly, I'll say hi, but you know, if you're a snake in the grass, man, you know what? Within five minutes of my conversation, I'll know. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there's those things. And I know that Shelly also is a really big um, balancer Mm -hmm. in my life, if I can say, just because, you know, like a lot of the time, if I feel like I'm tripping, she somehow convinces me that I'm not tripping. (laughs) (laughs) so I really like that obviously but yeah those are just a few things that I do and when it comes to music you know I used to be an athlete right Mm -hmm. and at the time like you know I didn't know how to control my emotions too well so I would listen to a lot of um, how can I say this in a diplomatic way Um, like um, a lot of songs that'll get you pumped up Right. right right Yeah, so I guess making that transition to, you know, like certain artists, like slow artists, like Daniel Caesar, Frank Ocean, Giveon, you know, it's chronic, somebody who's kind of slow and to like kind of help you, you know, relax a little bit. Yes. Making that change wasn't easy, but, you know, we got there and that goes back to being uncomfortable, right? Like the more and more you place yourself in uncomfortable situations, like you're, you're either going to grow or you're going to break. And once we break, I mean, it's just new beginnings, right? You just got to be positive. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a great way to uh, to tie this one up for us. I really want to thank you, thank you, ladies, for this. Um, I thought it was dope, and I I would love to get listeners' opinions. Shoot the text, uh, send the comments in. Let us know. Let me know what you think. Uh, if this format works for you, and I think I'm going to do a bit more of it. I actually really enjoyed it because it gives media opportunity to get other people's perspective on some of the random thoughts that run through my head on a regular basis, <laughs> balance me out a bit. Um, make sure you tune in, support the show and uh, we'll keep it coming until next episode. Love, peace and nappiness. Mm-hmm.